and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. What? No, we take part ourselves. That's right. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. And I'm Carrie Poppy. And uh, we're here today with an interview. Yeah. Another interview from SciCon, CSICon in Las Vegas, 2019. Yeah. So this was you and him, you and he, the interviewee. Yes. Nathan H. Lentz. He's a biologist and he wrote a book called Human Errors, a panorama of our glitches from pointless bones to broken genes. Sounds cool. Yeah. I'd mentioned this on a previous episode because I was so jazzed after reading it and uh, it was a pretty fun story. I kind of talk about it when I interview him, but I saw a guy who had the book on his lap and I said, oh, that's a really good book. Like I thought I was doing him a favor. Uh You're going to enjoy that. And he said, oh, thanks. I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and uh, a beautiful friendship was begun. Was this at CSICon? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was just, you know, on my way to my seat. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Yeah. So uh, those are the kind of fun happenstances. Also got to see former guest of the show, Britt Hermes. Nice. The naturopath. Nice. Also saw Susan Gerbic. Former naturopath. Yes. Good clarification there. (laughs) Also Susan Gerbic and Mark Edward, our buddies and a lot of people there. It was a great convention. Nice. You know, speaking of pointing at something and saying, I like that X and it turns out they make that X. When I was in Atlanta recently, I walked into this like art fair and I was wearing an on rack shirt, Ono, Ross and Carrie. And this girl said, uh, oh my gosh, I love that show. No one else ever knows about it except for me. I'm so so excited to meet someone else who likes it. And I just let her do it for a good minute. And then I was like, okay. I host that. And she's like, oh, my God. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Oh, it that's was so great. Fun. It was a delight. Anyway, so here's my interview with Nathan H. Lentz. Can't wait. All right. So today we're really excited to have a, a guest on the show. And I had a, a very funny way of meeting you, which was that I saw at SciCon 2019, the conference, uh, I saw a gentleman with uh, a book that I've mentioned on the podcast before sitting on his lap. Uh, it's called Human Errors, A Panorama of Our Glitches from Pointless Bones to Broken Genes. Excellent book. And we're going to talk a bit more about it. But I pointed at it and you know said, oh, that's a great book. Thinking I was helping somebody out. Oh, you're really going to enjoy that book. He said, well, thanks. I wrote it. <laughs> so everybody, here we have Nathan H. Lentz. Welcome. Thank you uh, very much. And just to clarify, I don't go around with copies of my own book. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yes. <laughs> I had brought a copy you were for, giving this. for someone. I brought it uh, a copy for Richard Dawkins. I wanted him to get a copy from me personally because we had tried to track him down to get an endorsement for the book. Yes. When it was going to come out in the UK, but he was in Antarctica at the time. So he was he had an away message on his email. We couldn't reach him. That's so, the best excuse I've ever I heard. <laughs> I was like, like, that's a good one. I'm going to remember that. Wow. But yeah. uh, So I knew he had heard about the book and we have a common friend that had talked about it. So I said, I'll just bring him a paperback and sign it and give it to him then. So that's why I had a copy. I don't go around with a copy of my own book. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, I'm glad we could clarify that. This isn't some weird ego thing. Well, of course, the great Richard Dawkins. I I myself was raised a creationist Mm -hmm. and went to a high school where I had one of those Bob Jones University textbooks. I still have it. And uh, and I had learned ways to argue against evolution. Mm -hmm. And I went to a series of lectures and I saw Richard Dawkins. I Mm -hmm. read first The Selfish Gene and then The Ancestor's Tale. Excellent book. That's what really Mm -hmm. clinched it for me where I finally went, oh, mm-hmm. I get it. This explains everything. Right. And either I've been lied to or, you know, some well-meaning, poorly 
informed people have kind of led me astray. But that that was a, a super helpful book. So was Neil Shubin's Your Inner Fish. Mm-hmm. And I felt like over the years, I've read a lot of really great books about human errors mm-hmm. and, and kind of the things that are the not so intelligent pieces of design. Uh, but reading your book taught me a whole lot more. And so that's why I've been eagerly uh, telling everyone about it. So super fun to meet you. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Where do you work? What do you do? Um, so I work at John Jay College, which is one of the colleges of the City University of New York. And I'm in the forensic science department, actually. So about half of my research life is in the world of forensics. Oh, wow. Uh, and then the other half of it is genetics, molecular biology. And right now I'm studying genome evolution. So I'm a scientist uh, part of the day and I teach classes part of the day. And then with whatever time I have left, I've started writing books and articles, uh, popular science, because I really enjoy, as a teacher, you know, part, yeah. partly, I really enjoy talking about science t- and teaching people about science. And I think that biology and specifically evolution it's not esoteric. It really affects your daily life. You are the product yes. of billions of years of evolution. And in fact, I would, I would emphasize the last 10 million years of our evolution really can be seen in our daily lives, things mm. you do every day, the way we use our bodies, the way we think. And I think it leads to a richer life. You live in better harmony with your own body when you understand how it came to be. Right. And it's led me into sort of an inadvertently at first into becoming a defender of evolutionary science in the public sphere. And that was a fight that was picked with me. I didn't go out looking for that fight. I, I spend most of my time with with scientists and, and uh, I live on the coasts and I grew up Catholic and it was foreign to me that people would have all this resistance to evolution and see it as such a, a big threat. And so when when people started picking on me for talking about evolution, I just considered it ridiculous that you wouldn't already believe and understand this stuff. Right. Um, but well, I've, I've since sort of tried to understand more about what people's problem is, why it makes people feel uncomfortable, this idea about evolution. And I think that I've learned a lot about empathy in the process. I am. Um, and I think that that's something that we sometimes, the humanity of, of all of us gets lost when, we're, when we argue. And, and we're never at our best online, mm-hmm. uh, right, social media. And that's where the fights often start yes. today. And we didn't evolve with online forums. We definitely didn't. We evolved to look people in the eye. Yeah. And when you sit down with a creationist and talk with them, you'll have a very different kind of conversation than when you're fighting with them online. Absolutely. And uh, a, a better conversation when you're talking with them in real life. And you'll you'll meet them where they are and you'll, you'll have this personal connection. And you'll understand a little bit more about why they think the way they do and why they're resistant. And that, for me, is the first step towards undoing whatever it is that, that is, makes them so resistant. So um, take away from this podcast then. First step, go hug a creationist or at least hug a creationist. L- look them eye to eye <laughs> yes. and have a conversation. Yeah, that's it. and I, I do work with evangelicals right now. I'm in, involved in a, in a process of it's science first. Yes. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not about trying to bend science so that it can work with religion. That, that, that's not what I do. I see a lot of people bending religion to fit science better. And that's fine with me because science is the winner in that. So when the two collide. Whatever you need to do to make it compatible. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's how I feel about it. And when the two collide, science doesn't bend. Mm -hmm. Um, And even if we wanted to try to bend it, it is what it is, right? Right. These things that we're discovering, they don't care that they're being discovered, right? Evolution happened whether we believe it or not, whether we discovered it or not. And so we were the product of 4 billion years of evolution before we realized we were the product of 4 billion years of evolution. And so I'm not worried about science being twisted to fit 
other narratives. I'm just not mm-hmm. worried about it. It's not, the truth wins. Well, one thing that I love from Pope John Paul II is he had mm-hmm. an encyclical called Truth Cannot Contradict Truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a powerful statement. So you yeah. just always go with the truth and you'll either have better, newer information or you'll realize that you you know, you know were wrong, but now you can embrace more truth. Yeah. And, and the Dalai Lama actually said it, I think, even, even better is he said, well, if science discovers something uh, that proves Buddhism wrong, Buddhism has to change. And I love that because here's the leader of a faith tradition yeah. admitting yes. that science is going to eventually reveal the truth and we'll have to respond to that. Yeah, and the fantastic. thing is, is they all have done that anyway, right? <laughs> because if you look at the Christian tradition and how much it's had to bend and yield and it's been embarrassed by its resistance to science in the past and they've learned that lesson. And I think that the, the Catholic Church painfully learned the lesson. But by the time the Big Bang was first really proposed, you know, someone told the Pope, don't look stupid again. Ah. <laughs> don't oppose this. Find right. God in it, if you will, but don't oppose it. And I, so I, I think. By that's... the way, it's 1992. Time to apologize to Galileo. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but did you did you see the apology? It was like there was blame on both sides. Yeah. Oh, gee, that's the mealy mouth apology. <laughs> not apology. Yeah, not apology. And another 400, um, 500 years. But Galileo was arrogant. Well, it, you know, arrogance one way to look at it. Correct is the other way. <laughs> but I do think though that we are on the precipice of a breakthrough, and at least when it comes to evolution. I think that a lot of Christians in this country are embarrassed to be Mm -hmm. so resistant to science and they know it doesn't make them look smart. It doesn't make them look good. And especially among the young generation of Christian evangelicals, I think they are looking for a way out of this fight. So I'm I'm part of that, and I know I'm going out on a limb here That's and there. Great. But uh, and you, you want to give them an olive branch, a, an easy path to get there without yeah. having to be shamefaced or right. apologetic or anything like exactly that. Exactly that. Exactly that. In fact, um, can we swear on this podcast? Yes. Okay. So please do. Um, and, and the talk earlier today, he echoed a talk nine years ago where the message is: don't be a dick. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can defend sound evolutionary science without calling people stupid for not understanding it. And also, before you call anyone stupid for not understanding it, have you explained it to them? Right. You know, have you really? Because there's so many misconceptions out there. And I'll admit, I had misconceptions about intelligent design. Yes. Um, a big misconceptions, actually, about what it is and what it says. Because um, you said that you wrote Human Errors aware that there are creationists out there who mm-hmm. maybe need to understand a bit more about our uh, human body plan and how that comes from our evolutionary antecedents, but that you weren't too aware of this intelligent design movement and writing this book sort of brought them down upon you. Yeah, exactly that. I, I didn't think I was picking a fight with them. Um, and in fact, I was annoyed at first because they said, well, you entered this by talking about design. And I was like, I didn't know you owned that topic. I didn't know I had to clear my book by you uh, and it, whether I satisfied all of your cr- critiques. I just wrote a book for biology. I assumed that people who would read my book had already bought into evolution and they were they wanted to, to be delighted and entertained yeah. about the evolution of the human body. It, That's what it was. But they accused me of sort of entering the design debate and then writing a book that was a poor refutation of intelligent design. First of all, they didn't read the book. It's very clear. Mm. But I didn't write it as a refutation of intelligent design. I didn't have intelligent design in mind at all. I would have written it very differently if I wanted to go out there and argue. However, the content of the book does challenge intelligent design. So I'm not, in hindsight, I'm not surprised that they were offended. You're talking Um, about some of their favorite discussion pieces like junk DNA and evolutionary pathways. Exactly. And they, but the problem is they're very, uh, I know this is not the right word to use, but they're very schizophrenic in, in how they approach this. And this confused me too, because half of their criticisms of my book were, well, we didn't say perfect design. Mm. So you're arguing against a position we don't hold. You're saying you're arguing against the straw man of perfect design. Okay. We're not saying anything about perfection. Said, okay. And then the other half of their criticisms 
were about the individual flaws that I discuss and how they're not really flaws at all. And here yeah, it's sure. actually good design. And I was like, well, which is it? <laughs> so are you saying that we do have these flaws <laughs> and that's fine or we don't? You know, so it, it took me months, mm. I will admit, it took me longer than it should have to realize what intelligent design is, is that it is a very loose confederation of very different views. Mm -hmm. So there's people in the intelligent design community that are young earth creationists. There are those who believe in common descent and real age of the earth and everything in between. And they don't have any coherent theory that brings their, their ideas into focus, like we have with evolutionary theory, right. which explains evidence, makes predictions, can be tested. They don't have anything close to a unifying theory. This is so that's why it's so schizophrenic. That's why it's so all over the place yeah. and it doesn't make sense. We, we experienced that looking at an extreme example, at the Flat Earth Movement. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than having a cohesive map or model of how all of this works, all they have are a collection of arguments against right. the other position. And it doesn't matter if they're mutually exclusive or incompatible. That's, Get, a, that's exactly right for intelligent design as well. It's a collection of criticisms, and many I, of which have been answered, by right. the way, but it's a collection of criticisms loosely affiliated under this. And occasionally they'll even admit it. There's one, one member of the community named Paul Nelson, who's a very nice man, a smart man, nice man. I've interacted with him, always positively thoughtful person. And he got caught sort of admitting publicly that movement still is in, is yearning for a cohesive mm. theory to be articulated. This was 15, 20 years ago. We're still um, waiting. Still waiting on that theory. And I know he, he takes a lot of heat from his community for occasionally telling the truth. Pointing that out. <laughs> but they don't have a coherent theory. And we didn't either as the scientific community until right. 1859, right? Right. So, <laughs> it, you know, it's fine. They're floundering because they, they the way we were. That's funny. Um, that is a refrain of the Flat Earth Movement as well. Like, well, you've had five hundred years to get your story straight yeah right okay so well, we'll just, until then but if you've if you've read books about the history of scientific ideas this gets into philosophy a little bit but the importance of a unifying theory that gathers uh the evidence is really crucial because then you can start science. making predictions it's the predictive elements of yeah it. yeah and so when you don't have that it's totally unfocused. Maybe we should take just a step back to define intelligent design if someone's not familiar with that movement. It kind of came out of creationism, but mm -hmm. but young earth creationism, the idea that the earth was started in 4004 BC or, mm -hmm. you know, literally a six day creation that has very clearly in court battles been shown to be a religiously motivated mm -hmm. and not science, not apropos for the science class. And so kind of the newer movement within the Christian community has been to say, okay, well, let's be far less direct about it and say, well, at least we see signs of a designer, someone who created all of this biological complexity that we see. And they have the Discovery Institute in mm -hmm. Washington. I think that's kind of the, Seattle, the, that's right. their main think tank. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're talking about a lot of those people that you've... Yes, for the most with. part. Most people I've interacted with have been either affiliated with or working at the Discovery Institute. They, they call themselves the intellectual home of the intelligent design movement. And it is a collection of criticisms, mostly, for the most part. And it comes down to they don't think it's plausible that all the complexity we see in life could come about by random molecular events. And so it is, it is more narrow than, than most people think, even than I thought yeah. uh, before. It is quite narrow. And they would even admit to uh, microevolution, for example, and that uh -huh. natural selection. They, they have no trouble with natural selection on, on shorter timescales, but they don't think it gets you to very unlikely things. And that's when there has to be some sort of intervention, some sort of design. Uh, so they sometimes say that uh, evolution of species and maybe even genera, possibly families of <laughs> organisms can happen by just random changes. Okay. But big, innovative things you know, can't happen by that random process. And of course, why do they, they've moved that goalpost several right. times. Even Michael Behe himself has moved that goalpost right. recently. But the point is that 
Of course, they don't argue with some of those level of changes because we've already seen those in the lab. Mm -hmm. But we don't have a time machine where, where it's necessary to see millions of years of change. But we've made a step in the right direction because at least they're accepting a lot of the accepted science. But then you have a god who sat over a, a world of bacteria for, you know, three billion years <laughs> before, you know, more complex life came about. That That's a separate theological issue. But it seems like they really fixate on particular things like, oh, hemoglobin, how did you get to that molecule? Mm -hmm. Or the blood clotting cascade, things like this. The flagella right. bacteria. Yeah, well, I love the flagella as an example, first of all, because it used to be the eye that they loved. The eye right. has all these parts. There's no way that it Darwin can himself admitted that, you know... How could it function until all the parts are in place? Because you don't have any advantage until they're all there, so there's no way you could have evolved it. First of all, the eye doesn't... Evolution doesn't form fully formed parts right. and add them to... It, the whole thing evolves as a unit. And it co-ops whatever's there. And exactly. And then... But we've now, of course, sort of basically figured out, because of their criticisms, partly at least, we have really good examples of the evolution of the eye among extant organisms and from fossils. We actually don't have any... But something any like real. 40 convergent, like a separate evolutions of the eye. Well, yeah, the eye itself has been invented many, many times. But even if you just consider the vertebrate eye, mm -hmm. we have so many intermediate examples from living organisms, from fossils. We don't. There's not any big black box on eye evolution. So they've retreated to this example of bacterial flagellum. And yeah. because that doesn't fossilize. So, of course, it's going to be very hard for us to. But we have good, really good theories on that. Right. <laughs> and I love as soon as the intelligent design proponents will suggest one of these things where we don't have a clear pathway, then that kind of invites a bunch of scientists to look very closely and do a lot of good research and models and then point, oh, this is exactly how it could have happened. That's right. And, and so criticism is good for science. I mean, criticism is how we do our best work. So I don't want anyone to come away with this thinking that we resent the criticism. And in mm -hmm. some cases it does, like you mentioned, focus us. Other times, though, we have to spend a lot of our time and energy batting away silly criticisms, right. which does take away from and they don't efforts. they don't always uh, quickly change their arguments based on those responses. To my arguments. knowledge, they've never admitted any mistake. There's so there's two commandments in the Discovery Institute. Mm. One is never seed a point. Okay. Never ever admit any point. Move on if you must, but never admit a point. And number two, never criticize your fellow intelligent designer. Oh. And this is how young Earth creationists and someone like Michael Behe, who does accept the true age of the Earth and common descent of all things, they can get along under this camp because they have this commandment keeping them in line. Okay. Um, even though the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. And I have more in common scientifically with Michael Behe than any of these young Earth creationists do. Right. But he still will camp with them. But the thing about Discovery Institute that can't be missed here is that it is first and foremost a political activist organization. Mm. That's how it was formed. If you look at its foundation documents and articles of incorporation, they have an advocacy role. Right. They are not a science group. And that makes a big difference because it organizes their motives, it organizes their thoughts. And if you've read anything about what Noam Chomsky has written about organizations of people versus individuals, you know, they can they can totally warp your thinking, warp your motives, and you have this sort of group think and it closes you off. That's their organizing principle. They're not open to other interpretations because that's why they're there. That's why they exist. So to even contemplate 
a natural view of evolution is an existential threat. So they're not going to do it. Right. So you're, you're already constrained within that, that answer that you've arrived at. Now we have to work backwards to, mm-hmm. to get the reasons to, yep. to hold that. It was born of conservative politics, socially right. conservative politics. And, and we have examples like that book of pandas and people. Mm-hmm. You know, it was written as a creationist textbook and then they realized, oh shoot, we can't do that. And so they did a, a search, a word replacement yeah, yeah, Microsoft to, word. Yeah. <laughs> to replace God with designer, essentially. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that they got caught red-handed with that. They got caught red-handed with with lots of stuff. They never admit it. I mean, you, you must have heard of the Wedge document that they yes. have that, that sort of organized them. And they, they will that never... That showed that political strategy. Yeah, and they'll never admit that. And if you follow Evolution News and Views, which is their website, I don't follow it, but they've written about me so many times that I've been on the website uh, yeah. to read their articles. Every other... Some articles are about science. Other ones are about euthanasia, abortion, gay marriage, or, or the family and marriage. I mean, is this an evolution science website? Or is this... It's wow. clearly about politics. I was not aware of that. Wow. Oh yeah, they, they, he writes. They go off on these um, assisted suicide things, legalization of drugs. They, they, they can't help uh, but sort of show their political. And yet they won't ever say they won't ever tie the intelligent designer to God explicitly because they want to have that sort of yeah, plausible deniability. And that's what at that point it does irritate me because it's dishonest, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. I look, I'll tell you my politics. I'll tell you my motives. It's all out there in the open. Um, I don't try to do this, but I'm really trying to do that. They're just not honest. Yeah, that's a problem. Well, you said something fantastic today about how even even those of us who kind of understand the evolutionary worldview and how we got to be where we are uh, still have kind of these lingering illusions about our bodies. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit to that? Sure. So the first thing uh, that I sort of that my book pushes back against is this idea that evolution produces perfection mm. or that or that organisms are perfectly adapted for their environment. A lot of people think this way. Even scientists think this way. It's, it's sort of embedded in this, in our view that the wonders of nature and look at how everything is perfectly suited for its environment. Somehow we are the, and that we are the peak of. And then this, yeah, the second, the corollary to that is that humans are the ultimate expression mm. uh, of biological perfection and everything else is a a lower form. It was a march of progress towards the human form. So neither of those things are true. Humans, it has this kind of built-in teleology to it, that there was an intent that eventually we'll get to humans. Right, right. That's right. And it was goal-oriented and, and, and that. And so I push back against both of those ideas separately. Nature does not produce perfection. And in fact, there's no such thing as perfection in nature. I mean, you can't even theoretically think of what that would be. So you do this little thought experiment. Right. What is a perfect organism? So it huh. it beats all of its infectious diseases. It has no parasites. It, it outcompetes its competitors, escapes its uh, predators. It eats all of its food. How long could it stay that way? <laughs> right. Right before it's eaten all the food and it's taken over. And, it's and expanded, it, used all the resources, <laughs> and there's nothing left for it. Right. Now so, it's a failure all of a sudden. Exactly. So you can't even theoretically think of what a perfect organism would be. Mm. Everything is a struggle. The Red Queen hypothesis has taught us that, that you have to struggle to stay alive, even without major adaptation going on, just to stay a, a member of our planet. And even success is tied to the environment that mm-hmm. you live in, and the environment changes. It changes constantly, at the micro level especially, but even at the macro level. So if we look at the organisms that have persisted the longest, and horseshoe crabs, great white sharks, yeah. things like this, they still are evolving on the molecular scale just to outcompete infectious diseases, if nothing else. But but there's more, there's more than that as well. That's always so, an interesting thought, that even something that has held a pretty consistent form over millions of years mm-hmm. has changed quite a bit in terms yeah, of underneath, its genetics. Yeah, underneath their anatomy hasn't changed that much because they're living in basically the same way. 
because their environment hasn't gone undergone right. And, and if you think of great white sharks, they are apex predators. So what they eat doesn't matter, right? They'll eat mm-hmm. different things. And so they really don't have to undergo any major anatomical changes. But they are certainly evolving on the molecular scale, at least, because of infectious diseases and changes in ocean temperature. I mean, all these things will have an effect. Right. So so I push back right. against those two things. Humans are not the pinnacle of evolution. We have our own problems. And, and in fact, uh, I didn't get a chance to say this much at the presentation today. But I strongly believe that humans are more flawed than most, possibly the most flawed of all vertebrate animals, actually, because something radical has happened in us. It took time and, and we've been this is happening over over a lot of time, but we we have made cultural evolution the engine of our angelus rather than genetic and biological. So what that means is when we encounter a change in the environment or, or um, we move to a new environment, we don't wait around for mutations to solve the problems right. anymore. We, we sow parkas or you know, <laughs> exactly. we build heaters and exactly. air conditioners. And even before that, like, even in the simplest sense, we have division of labor and we're the ultimate generalists. I mean, think of it this way. So there's an animal that's stronger than us. There's an animal that can climb better than we can, run faster. There's not a physical Any feature thing. you can name. There's an animal that does it better, but we can do it all. Mm-hmm. Right. Find another creature that can climb and run and swim and do all of the things we can do. So, so we became ultimate generalists, first of all, so we can survive all these different ways. We can eat all kinds of different foods. So that's great. But then we also started solving our problems with our intricate social structure, division of labor, uh, reliance on each other. And then, of course, just our big brains. So we're solving the problems with our brains instead of our bodies. Mm-hmm. And that took natural selection's watchful eye yeah. off of our bodies. So when you can be really weak but still survive because you contribute to the group, weakness isn't weeded out. Right. If your poor vision means you just do a different job, then poor vision doesn't get – imagine a hawk with poor eyesight. Right? D- there, there's exactly zero hawks that have poor eyesight. It will notice an immediate effect immediate. upon it. But you, ability. if you have bad, poor eyesight, you just do a different job. Yeah. Right? I get and, surgery or glasses. Exactly. Well, yeah. But even before that. But yeah. Yeah. So the, so the point is we've been – we haven't been living and dying on the strength of our bodies for a very long time. And so that's why our bodies are so... It always comes back to selection. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we've kind of removed the natural selection. Yeah. So it's a good... I think my book's an uplifting story. Aren't you glad that your body doesn't have to be perfect? (laughs) Right. For you to contribute. And so so it is a... it is a triumph in a sense yeah. uh, that we're allowed to be such crappy uh, species in most ways, but yet still uh, survive. Another way I put it is there's no mammal that can live in coldest tundra, the driest desert, the wettest rainforest, temperate, every single climate on this planet. We're the only mammal that can do it all mm-hmm. because we invented clothes and yeah. shelter and homes. and we don't, So it's not our bodies that are capable of that. It's our brains that figured out how to do that. Right. Uh, but when you do that, when you stop following the regular rules of natural selection and you, you put cultural evolution in the driver's seat instead of genetic evolution, then it does end up with these these consequences. So our bodies, we need vitamin C in our diet, for yes. example, and other, other oh, weird yeah. things. And so that's, that's uh, I think it's a good thing, though, overall. I'm, I'm certainly yeah. glad to be living this way instead of... Oh, by uh, all means. Yeah, I think if I had to choose where to be born, I would choose now rather than any other time in <laughs> that's our right. evolutionary history. That's right. So, so let's get into some of these things. Uh, one I'd mentioned on the podcast before was what you'd said about vitamins. Now, mm-hmm. you have a kind of, you had three broad fields or different types Mm -hmm. of these errors and one was like mismatching mismatch yeah so this is just the idea that we're now living in a very different world in very different ways than our bodies were evolved to to live in 
Um, you know, we're very, we have great bodies for the African Savannah and, and the Pleistocene, uh, but we now work in offices and, and sit in chairs. So that, that's a good category of flaws in the sense that you can do something about that. You know, you can get a stand-up desk and you can make sure that you get up and walk around a lot and you can look at your diet and say, how much does it match the diet of the ancestors and what can we do to make it match better? There's right. lots of things you can do. I like those categories of errors right. because we're, we can still take charge. And I've, I've learned a lot over the last five years and I, I'm living in a more evolutionary evolutionarily correct way, I would say. I, ah. I learned from Dan Lieberman and others. Yeah, how do, how do you this. sit when you're working at your desk when you're writing? I stand. Okay. I, as much as I can, a standing I stand. Desk. Yeah, and then I don't stand as much at work because I get ridiculed. So I had a stand-up desk for a while, and so I, it, it, social <laughs> pressure. And, oh, uh, interesting. <laughs> we have, at least at my work, uh, we have desks that you can adjust and you can... Well, you're in California. It's oh. more accepted. <laughs> Fair in, enough. In New York, they just... We're uh, all hippies. Yeah, in New York, they just make fun of you. But no, no, I, 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 I you, try you to... You were saying this to the audience and I was sitting in the chair and uncomfortable uh, yeah. because I'd been there for hours. Yeah. Chairs are just not, not good for us in any way. Get out of that chair as much as you can. Uh, so that's, those are mismatched flaws. I like those, but there's other kinds of flaws that there's no, there's no fix for, for most of these things. So some of them, I call them trade-offs. Uh, well, I don't call them trade-offs. They are trade-offs. They're evolutionary compromises. So you, you gain one function, you lose another, but then some of our, our quirks are just just bad luck that wasn't corrected. Okay. And so our, so our diet's a good example of that. And when we started eating in these in this very generalist way, uh, as we moved away from, you know, uh, being vegetarians to more omnivorous, is yeah. we, we had all of these different rich sorts of foods. And what that was was nature was providing us on a silver, you know, platter all yeah. these all these rich nutritious foods. And then our ability to make those things ourselves and even extract them in some cases just got diminished over time. Yeah. Because even though Lamarck you know, missed, missed the mark in some ways, <laughs> he actually wasn't wrong about this idea of use and disuse. So if you don't use something over evolutionary time, you lose it does it. go away. Yeah, because of the randomness of mutations, it will eventually strike something. And if there's no consequences, right. you can lose it. So the story of vitamin C is such a good example mm-hmm. of that. And for me, that was fascinating reading your book because I had always wondered that. Like, why can I give my cat this same daily basic diet and mm-hmm. that's enough for her yeah uh, and yet i need to eat all these different things and i'm tired if i have to eat italian twice in the same day you know yeah that's right we're and we are built to, to seek out that diversity of food i i believe yeah uh, that, that's part of our natural appetite um and citrus fruit uh, is a good source of vitamin c but most animals have no need for that in their diet and in fact it's not healthy for them but humans and all actually all primates need vitamin c because we lost the ability to make it ourselves like a key gene was mutated what did you say the gulo the gulo gene so it's g u l o it stands for l gulanolactone oxidase um the 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 thing is is it's a key step in vitamin c yeah. synthesis and without vitamin C, you can't make collagen, and collagen is important for all the tissues of our body, the structural integrity of those tissues. And so if you don't get vitamin C, your tissues fall apart, and we call that scurvy. But how did this happen in the first place? How did the first primate, the ancestor of all primates, when she got this mutation, why didn't she just die of scurvy? And that was the end of it. She took those mutations with her. Yeah. Well, she had vitamin C in her diet already. She was surrounded by some sort of citrus, probably. Yeah, yeah, or, or other sources. And and where do primates live? In the rainforest, where there's plenty of vitamin C around. So it makes sense. And then, of course, through bad luck, it got fixed in the population. And this happened to be a population that would become the ancestor of this great clade of organisms yeah. known as primates. And But primates have always been restricted to environments that have vitamin C in them, mostly tropical and rainforest. And so every time primates try to go into other areas, I'm sure they died of scurvy. The, the continent of Europe was primate free for all of its history uh, until Neanderthals and then later modern humans huh. were the only primates that successfully 
colonized it and probably got a lot of scurvy as they did so. Yeah. Um, there's actually an exception to that now. I love really? This. I love this story. So there's um, a species called Barbary macaques. And as the name suggests, they, Barbary live, Coast. In, they live in, in northern Africa. And they have started migrating. And they're threatened. They're, they're uh, severely threatened in Morocco. But they've started migrating through the Strait of Gibraltar on boats to southern Spain, where they're now thriving. On <laughs> the first, on, yeah, so they they hitchhike, they, they, hitchhike, they uh, stow away on these boats, and they end up. There's a, there's wild populations now of Barbary macaques in southern Spain, but there's dates and other things that they can eat for vitamin C. Okay, so that's why they live there and they're thriving there. And I love this so much because that's Barbary macaques on the cover of my first book. It's oh, a I've family got of Barbary macaques, two parents and a baby. And by the way, those are both females. Oh really? Yeah, it's a matriarchal species, and oh, um, not just the bonobos. No, there's lots of matriarchal species out there, and the great thing about Barbary macaques is they're also engaged in alloparenting, meaning it's a fungible asset. Like anyone can. Yeah, parent. that's right. They all contribute to parenting. Okay, um, and there there's not that much preference to parent only your own kin. So I, I they're huh. another species that teaches us that nature is not just red in tooth and claw, but actually uh, cooperation and social support is something that humans did not invent, but we did capitalize yes. on it and take to its extreme. So we should mention that book, Not So Different. Mm -hmm. That Not was so your first book. That's right. And I, I look uh, it's forward a, to reading this. Yeah, it's about it's kind of a evolutionary psychology kind of book. I don't take it that way. What I do is just look at behavioral similarities between humans and other animals. So let's dissect human behavior by looking at animal behavior. Why do animals do these things mm -hmm. and have these emotions? What do those emotions drive them to do as a way to sort of understanding our own emotions and what it drives and us to do? This weighs very heavily on discussions of human morality because mm -hmm. we'll often say, well, where do you get your morals? Well, look at the animals. Where do they get theirs? Because they practice many of these same things. Exactly. I, humans did not invent morality. <laughs> we invented ways to talk about morality right. and ascribe the source of morality to something other than nature. But morality but, is all about existing within a group mm -hmm. you know it's all about your relationship with others and that had to be hammered out to some extent yeah. before we could talk about it yeah that's right we we have moral instincts and some of them come from as you said group living and, and how how you can get along but also some of the things about like shame mm. and gossip no, and yeah. reputation Shunning. Um, we didn't in, yeah we yeah. didn't invent any of that actually other species do it uh, we do it we're very sensitive to gossip and shame and reputation <laughs> And so we act in moral ways because we want people to think we act in moral ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, people think like, oh, how could you, doesn't that just make it a cold view of life? And I said, I, I don't get that at all. I don't understand that criticism of an atheistic worldview one bit because to me, to know that our system of morality, of treating other people with dignity and care, the fact that it has a millions of years of history yeah. enriches it. That, that doesn't cheapen it. And it shows that it's in us. It doesn't have to come from somewhere else. It doesn't have to be handed to us. Right. It's part of us. It's, it's baked into our DNA to care about other people. And we care about stories, and that makes us part of a very long, a very cool story. Very long, very cool story. And we are storytellers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's not surprising that we would try to come up with origin stories, for example, and stories about morality. And all that. That's not surprising. Uh, what's surprising is how persistent those stories have been in our psyche when we now have such great evidence for where this all actually came from. Yeah. That's the, the stubborn part. And um, I talk about that a little bit in Human Errors, how when you form an opinion, you are really wedded to that opinion. We all do it. It's one of our many cognitive biases that we are very refractory to alternative evidence to what mm. we actually really want to believe. Right. So that's what I do. That's why I do what I do. That's fascinating. <laughs> and it, we can kind of point to evolutionary reasons why we have some of those predispositions. I think it served us well in the past. 
Uh, Ross. Um, hi, Carol. Sorry to interrupt oh, your convention. That's weird. You're not here. I'm speaking to you through telepathy. Oh, very cool. Well, welcome to you're my welcome. head. Yeah, no problem. It's good to be here. Okay. Boy, there is a lot of shit in here. There's so many numbers. What are all these numbers? <laughs> what is, is this the periodic table? Just leave everything where you found it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, you know, Ross. Yes, Carrie, voice in my head. I, I came here to talk to you about bras. Oh, okay. Uh, I am talking to Nathan Lentz right now, but but by, hold on, Nathan. Carrie's going to tell me about bras. Did yes. he tell you anything about boobs? Uh, No. The evolution of boobs? He did not. Okay. Yay or nay. Not that I recall. You know, I think boobs... Uh, escaped the category of human errors. I guess boobs are one of those things that we don't need a lot more explaining for. It's pretty obvious <laughs> how those came to be. Okay, yes. I mean, if you yeah, if you believe in evolution. They work relatively well. Yeah, you make milk if you want to. Anyway, the point is, Ross, if you have boobs and you want to put them in something, you want something comfortable. Yeah, evolution didn't give you that. And, exactly. Uh, and yet we know a company that did, which is Third Love. Precisely. Third Love, it's a great brassier company. One of my favorite bras is from Third Love. It's super light, but it still does its job. Mm-hmm. Often you have to trade between those two things, you know? Oh, It'll right. Be the real sturdy bra, but it's also weighing you down. Gotcha. It does both jobs. That's and impressive. Yeah. If you have sloping shoulders like I do, it doesn't slip off your gosh dang shoulders like everybody else's bra. Well, that's an advantage. So, whatever breasts the good evolution gave you, you can try the Fit Finder quiz at Third Love, and it'll tell you which size you should be wearing. You might find out something you didn't know. Exactly. And it's nice to be able to order these things from the comfort of your own home. And Third Love bras are designed to be super comfortable. They're lightweight. They have memory cups. And there are tagless labels, which is nice. Oh, nice. No itchy tags. Yeah. And you have 60 days to wear it, wash it, put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it. Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so... Right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Just go to thirdlove.com slash oh no right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash oh no for 15% off today. Hey, Carrie, well, before you leave my head. Yeah, what's up? And next time, I don't know, maybe ask or I don't know, text mm, me mm-hmm, in advance. I don't mm-hmm. know. This... That's not how telepathy works. Okay. Well, I am here all the time now. Mm, all right. But you do tell me when you're here, right? <laughs> oh jeez. Okay. Well. Okay. Well, before I go, then, because I don't want to interrupt you again and okay. freak you out. Yeah, yeah. Wait a second. I bet you know what I was going to mention next. I okay. You're thinking of a bird. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're thinking of a bird that's got great balance. Yes. You're thinking Correct. of a bird that's got great balance and eats fish. Mm-hmm. You're thinking of a bird. Great balance eats fish. Often seen at the zoo. Okay, yes. Thinking of a bird, great balance, fish, zoo, associated with Florida. Correct. Amazing. Okay, okay. Are you thinking of the bald eagle? No. That's entirely wrong. Fuck. Okay, I can't read minds. Oh, I was very impressed there for a moment. I was Hmm. thinking of flamingo. Oh, flamingo. It might have thrown you off. I mean, I was thinking of the bird, but I was also thinking of the hotel where this conference is being held. Mm. And also an amazing company that produces ladies shaving razors. It's funny you mention that because I have a flamingo razor. I love it. Mm -hmm. They don't tell anyone, Ross, but they sent me one for free to try it out. I liked it so much I went and used my own money dollars 
to buy more. Fantastic. Yeah, and, uh, they're really good. Okay, well, I won't tell anybody. Okay. <laughs> Here's my secret. Because, you know, I like to keep a shaved leg, but also some of these razors, they're not so good. I mean, you've probably had this experience on your old face. Mm-hmm. Some razors, like, you shave and it's like, I really don't have to do this for another few days. And then mm. some razors, you use them and it's like, I'm prickly tomorrow. Correct. Flamingo does the job. Oh, that's Keeps awesome. Keeps the hair at bay. That's always an amazing thing when it somehow, like, I don't know, pulls the hair out and cuts it so it sort of snaps back into your skin, it seems. Like, it's hidden mm, mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Extra close shave. So, it does one of that. Is that what it does? I think that's the idea, is that it kind of huh. pulls the hair, cuts it, and oh, then it, it whoa. sort of snaps back in. Whoa. That's my mental picture, anyhow. How often huh. do you shave? Well, now, probably, mm, with my flamingo, I would say only, like, twice a week. Well, okay. So that's an improvement. Yeah. Excellent. It's doing great. And what a coincidence we'd be talking about it because this episode is sponsored in part by Flamingo. Well, uh, hey, Evolution gave you hair on Mm -hmm. your legs. And if you don't want it there, uh, this is just the right product for you. And uh, this solution comes from the folks behind the razor brand Harry's. Flamingo makes body care for women with hair. They've got razors, shave gel, body lotion, the works. So listen, guys, think about it. You probably spend more than 16 bucks on razors and blades already. With the Flamingo shave set, you can upgrade for the same amount or even less than you're paying now, including the parts you skimp on like shave gel and exfoliating lotion. And they even send you a shower holder. Flamingo Shave Set features their award-winning products for just $16 and it ships free directly to your door. It's a $22 value for just 16 buccarinos with free shipping today when you visit shopflamingo.com slash oh no. That's right. Visit shopflamingo.com slash oh no. Did you hear that, Nathan Lentz? Yeah, he says he did. Oh, good. Well, I'll be back later. Bye. Now, if I can ask you a quick follow-up question about the vitamin C thing, mm-hmm. what, what do you think would happen if we did take a healthy working copy of a gulo gene mm-hmm. and CRISPR it into somebody's genome? So it wouldn't be as simple, unfortunately, as fixing the one gene okay. because other steps of the pathway have it's since very decayed in- interconnected. Well. Uh, but But let me take the question at face value and say, if we could fix this with CRISPR, absolutely, that would be great. Except... I don't think we need more reasons to not eat well, <laughs> right? So I would just assume we actually have the fix yes. for this gene, and that is eat your vegetables and fruits, right? Yeah. So if you just do that, you're better off for a number of reasons. I would like to deploy CRISPR for a lot of things, but not really for vitamin C. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, you, you've got to tell the story about vitamin B12. That's another fascinating one. I, I went vegetarian three years ago, uh-huh. but I get enough animal products still that I'm not worried about being deficient, but I have a lot of vegan friends. And that's mm-hmm. really the one thing because people will say, oh, well, look at our teeth, you know, look at our guts. You know, we were built to absorb meat and eat meat. For the most part, no, but B12 is a legitimate thing that vegans have to supplement. That's right. B12, there's almost no plant sources of B12. Uh, cobalamin is the, the name of it. Actually, the, cobalamin does exist, but we can't extract it from plant sources. Oh, interesting. Um, cyanobacteria, I think, can grow it. Yeah, so you can get it from seaweed. Okay. Right. So you can get it from seaweed. Cyanobacteria, I don't know how to make that in a dietary form okay. for humans. But, but for kelp, for seaweed, if you and they have the seaweed chips. I don't like the seaweed okay. chips myself, but my kids love them. I'm like, it's so fishy and salty, but they love it. So if you if you get that, then you actually don't really have a problem. But B12 is the one thing that vegans have to worry about. So, But the crazy thing with B12 is, you might be wondering, well, all the animals that we eat that provide us with B12, Where do they how get? do they get it? Yeah, they're all vegetarians. Yeah, the cow's not eating other cows. When we're yeah, not so where do they give you 12? Well, the answer is that they have bacteria in their guts 
that make vitamin B12 for them as a byproduct, you know, secrete it, and then they absorb it right there in their intestines, right at the place of synthesis. It's very convenient. We have a, a vitamin that we do the same thing with vitamin K, which is involved in blood clotting. You may not have even heard of vitamin K because nobody's heard of it no. because you don't need it in your diet because you right. make it in your intestines. You don't, but your bacteria do. And so the question is, well, why don't we just get those bacteria? Well, we already have those bacteria. They live in our intestines. Well, geez, what's the problem? Are they not making B12? <laughs> no, they're making B12 and they're in our large intestines. But we can only absorb vitamin B12 in our small intestine. Why, why? Which comes and, first in the in the uh, row of traffic. So so it's too late uh, when the B12 appears and we send it to the toilet instead <laughs> of absorbing it. So you can be vitamin B12 deficient but still have it in your gut and send it to the toilet rather than absorbing it. And this was the horrifying fact. You said that if you did eat human fecal matter, yes, there would be a sufficient amount of B12 in there. But don't That's do right. that. That's right. Don't There's do it. better ways. There is a study. Though. There was a paper uh, where they measured vitamin B12 in human feces and they found it was a dietarily sufficient source. This is why I love science. <laughs> you would get a paper like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it just it just goes to show that the body is not necessarily intel- intelligently designed and it doesn't think ahead very far. Mm-hmm. So what happened clearly at some point as we made the transition from vegetarianism to omnivory, our bodies just got lazy. Here's all this vitamin B12 is just being served up to us. So our small intestine absorbed it instead of the large intestine because it was there. Yeah. Um, and we lost the ability. Um, and so now it's a problem. And and you think, oh, if I had the ability of a, a super crisper, you know, mm-hmm. a, dare I say an intelligent designer, you know, I could go in and I can make little tweaks and adjustments and kind of. Yeah. Thing. And in fact, I would say we don't know the mutations that, that cause that loss. Okay. Uh, in fact, knowing just this whole story is, is fairly recent science. But what's cool about that is. To fix it, I assume, will be very easy if we were going to do that just mm-hmm. because we don't need any new genes or anything. We, it's just the genes not being expressed in the right place. So that's just a promoter issue uh, in the genetics. So that would be relatively easy to fix. Okay. If we could find it, it would be relatively easy to fix. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, that involves the interaction with bacteria, other mm-hmm. organisms. So that's another thing you've spoken about is just sort of the makeup of how much of our genetic makeup is actually human versus <laughs> yeah. uh, little uh, copied pieces ancestral viral DNA. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, our bodies themselves are filled with uh, other organisms. Yeah, well, definitely bacterial cells outnumber human cells in the human body. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know exact, exactly the numbers. Uh, yeah, I, I, at you know, least two I've, to one. I, I should probably clarify because I think I may have even repeated the wrong statistic before because I had heard many times that there's something like a 10 to 1 relationship. Yeah, that was the number that was thrown about uh, years ago. I'm reading. We know the, that's too much, but probably between 1 to 1 and 2 to 1 seems to be okay. the number of most microbiologists would say, but yet definitely there's more bacterial cells than human cells in the human body. And we rely on them very, very dearly for lots of things. If you, if you kill the bacteria that live in, on and around you, you'll be in trouble really fast. And that's a problem. If we could do the Jurassic Park thing and bring back dinosaur DNA, well, we wouldn't have the bacteria that they were. There's a, well, that's one of many problems. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's true. I never thought about that way. We wouldn't know, we wouldn't be able to inoculate them with the right microbiome. I never even thought about that, but that's absolutely true. And you get your microbiome from your mother, first of all, Mm -hmm. first and foremost, but then you're interacting with the environment your whole life. And so you are not, you are not you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're the collection of a lot of a lot of different things, and in your DNA. So there are certain viruses that are just very nefarious in the sense that they take their genetic material and put it in ours, mm-hmm. inside our chromosomes. It actually inserts there, and then sometimes we defeat that infection, but the carcass of that virus is left. It's still there in the chromosomes. And, and our immune system can use that to help identify things and potentially, but a lot of times. It just sits there forever. 
Uh, and, and of course, we only pass it on to our uh, descendants if it's in our gonads, you know, if it's in the sperm and egg, because, you know, your DNA and all your right. other cells dies with you. But the because DNA. Because of Lamarck being wrong and all that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the DNA of sperm and eggs gets passed on. And so when uh, one of those progenitor cells defeated a virus infection, and the genome is still there, and in fact, 9% of human DNA is actually viral DNA. It's a virus. 9%. 9%. And what did you say is the actual, like, human encoding? DNA for protein encoding genes is three percent. So you have three times more viral DNA yeah. than protein encoding human DNA. So that brings us roughly to twelve percent. Well, what's the rest of the the makeup? Well, so another twenty to twenty five percent is what we call regulatory DNA. So this is DNA that helps us use our genes effectively mm-hmm. when they're expressed, where they're expressed, how much they're expressed, the interactions among genes. So that takes a lot more DNA than the actual gene itself. The actual gene is the smallest, easiest thing to do. Using it properly. That's how we get all our, all our complexity. That's the part of the DNA that we don't really share with bacteria because bacteria is very simple. Yeah. Uh, they're very successful, but they're fairly simple. Whereas we have this all this complexity, so we need that regulatory DNA. So that still only gets you, you know, 25 to 30% of our genome really wow. does anything helpful. The rest of it is pure junk. Repetitive sequences... It's kind of like the equivalent of Jack Nicholson typing out, you know, all work right. and no play makes Jack and no play. Like, you know, you pick we up know the how human that story ended. Yeah, you pick up the human genome and you find the pages and you're horrified. Like, yeah. uh, was it Shelley Duvall? Yeah, Shelley, Shelley Duvall. Yeah. You're going through the pages. Oh no, what is this? Ah, it's all repeated. You, oh my gosh, I so I do this for a living. I yeah. live through the genome. I feel like Shelley Duvall all the time, <laughs> all all the time. Because, like, for example, we don't even always know how many copies of certain genes we have. And, in fact, I just – I'm working on a gene right now, the evolutionary origin of, of a very interesting microRNA gene. And, god damn it, I have the human genome at my disposal. I can't tell how many copies we have of it. Because if you look back in previous drafts of the Human Genome Project yeah. – it comes up different numbers of times. Oh, really? And you're like, wait a minute. Whatever whatever the number is, we should be able to tell what it is. You know why we can't? Some of these things are so highly copied in that when we're sequencing DNA and piece, piecing together our oh, chromosomes, the se- we can't even tell when it stops. Because the sequencing well, process involves chunking, right? Chunking, exactly. And so you do the overlap. But imagine it's all repetition. Okay. So how how many overlaps yeah, where, do you have? Where do you break it up? Wait, oh, I lost count. Shoot, where do I pick up again? Exactly that. And so right now, we've just finally had a breakthrough, I think, where the previous draft of the human genome has it correct. We have two copies of this gene, but we were working on the assumption we had four. And so we've been chasing our tails for about eight weeks on this project. Amazing. Shelley Duvall style. <laughs> and uh, I think we've got it figured out that the previous draft of the human genome, HG19, we're on HG38 now. Don't worry about why the numbers are crazy like that. And yeah, I think we've got that sorted out. So this is a new gene that we're looking at. So yeah. I study how genes are born in the human genome, which is I'm, I'm an obstetrician, uh, so to speak. And it's funny because I started a new collaboration on this project with a computer scientist because I'm drowning in data. You really need somebody who's a professional data scientist to do this this work. He's, he doesn't know that much about genetics. He's fairly naive to all this. Hmm. And he just goes, you know, the human genome is kind of a disaster. He's like, this is a mess. How does how did we get anything out of this? I was like, mm. I, I don't know. And this I is was, someone who kind of works with information theory. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So the information theorists just think it's chaos. And I said, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> because evolution is not about efficiency or being neat and tidy. It's just a hodgepodge. And our genome really is the, the hodgiest, podgiest of all. <laughs> but yet it all comes together somehow. And that's the magic of it. And that's what... That's why I don't 
find this to be a cold and dehumanizing mm. way of looking at life. It's it's so much more interesting that we can make sense out of this nonsense. Right. And gibberish becomes genes. And if it if it were somehow sad and cold and depressing, it would still be the truth. But what? <laughs> That's right. How lucky are we that it actually is kind of inspiring and cool? It, it is. Yeah. And, and it gives us action items. Gives us things that we can do about it. That's right. And when you're doing this kind of work, it all you also sometimes have to step back and realize how how incredible it is because this planet's been around for 4.6 billion years and only now are we at the point where we can even ask these questions. Mm -hmm. We knew these things were happening. The other day, I was just scanning through genome sequences from a 50,000-year-old Neanderthal. Well, her remains are 50,000-year-old. She was a woman, a real woman, and we have her almost complete genome sequence. And I'm scanning through it, and this is available online. If you have a computer, you can go and look at genome sequences from a woman, a real woman who was alive 50,000 years ago, who had hopes and dreams and, and she might have had kids. She certainly had parents and friends. She was a real person who was wandering the Altai Mountains and died yeah. in a cave. And we were lucky enough to find her. And I'm looking through her genes like I'm checking out a book in the library. It's amazing. It is fascinating. And every once in a while, you have to catch and you stop and you're like, you know, this wasn't even theoretically possible 10 years ago. Yeah. And now my undergraduates are doing it. Okay, this is a question I always have. Do do you ever kind of look at previous discoveries and feel frustrated that, oh, shoot, we would have excavated that in such a different way. I wish I could go back and kind of reacquire that sample. Yes. Uh, I, think, I think that happens a lot in any field where you look back in the past and you look at the way that science was done, you're like, gosh, we oh, were they so brushed naive. away all of these scale imprints or yeah. something like that. Yeah. We were so naive. And now we've learned that lesson where to request a fossil, for example, for DNA analysis yeah. is very hard because it consumes the sample. So you have to be very careful. But what cool things that we're learning from it. It's, 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 a, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. It really does feel like a privilege to be doing that work because, you know, I get to go to work every day and do this and people pay me to yeah. do it. And I don't produce anything for them except for hopefully knowledge every now and then. <laughs> um, and I don't know what you do with information about Neanderthals in terms of real world applications. That's um, such an important point too, because uh, there's no immediate commercial application. And so that can't always be the impetus for science. Sometimes you just need to ask yeah. the questions, do the hard work, figuring them out. And then, yeah, maybe they'll pay off. And, and when they do, they pay off big. They do. And, and you can't predict when it will and when it won't. And that's such a terrible way to, to decide how to do science because sometimes when you're studying, for example, the bacterial immune system, yeah. you discover something like CRISPR. Yeah, right. <laughs> so no one could have predicted you know, that that would have worked out that way. So that's why it's important to fund science without any eye of commercial products, uh, but just for what's interesting, what's neat, uh, and what also might reveal something profound. And when you put any kind of blinders on science, it's not good science. So right now we're in a sort of a precarious time because science funding is down and mm-hmm. slow and it's also tied to this they want you to do industry relationships and how does this market and what how does this benefit the what's country? the roi return on yeah. investment for this um and it's just like come on we can't be motivated by that and also isn't it self-explanatory why science benefits society i mean i shouldn't really have to explain <laughs> yeah, that yeah do we have to keep making that point yeah i mean and, and and things that did inspire us to become in the united states anyway to become world leaders of science the cold war was a big one yeah um, and look at everything that came from it without necessarily thoughts of, okay, going to the moon, does that make us any richer or whatever? No, it's going to cost an enormous amount of money. But look how it motivated all this other technology that came from it. And so when we invest in science, you always get $10 for every one you spend. You just can't predict it ahead of time. Right. So 
and it's bad science if you even try. So I think that we're in a, a, a poor period for that because the, our psychology about science is so utilitarian. Mm. But I think we're close to breaking through that. I, I hope we're close to breaking through that. Excellent. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on again, Nathan. I'm... Uh, Hello! Yeah, you, you Hello! I can detect you. Hello! Anybody my- there? In my head. Hello, yeah. Ross? Yes, hello. Oh, made contact again. Uh-huh. This is what I've been doing while you're gone. I've been working on my telepathy. Well, I got to say, this is impressive. Thank you. And uh, I think we should be able to sign you up for the CFIIG's challenge, you know, $250,000. Why? Because you're a telepath now, and that's... Oh. That's yeah. worth a lot of money. Huh. I didn't really think of it as like a paranormal ability. I just figured I just evolved to do this. Unless you're using a sufficiently advanced technology that My is brain. indistinguishable from magic. Yes. I think that qualifies. My own brain. Okay. Well, now that you're here again, what do you want? I forget. Oh, I was here because I wanted to wish you a happy birthday. Why, thank you, except it's not my birthday. Oh, wait, it's Shark's birthday. Oh, my goodness. Happy birthday, Shark. And uh, you know what? This message, it's from Shark's younger sibling, who says, thank you for introducing me to Onrak. Here's to many more investigations. That's awesome. So apparently, Shark's birthday was actually on November 9th. Happy belated birthday. A belated birthday to you and an early happy birthday for 2020. Oh, November 9th, 2020. Fingers crossed, Shark. Fingers crossed. Oh, you don't have fingers. You're a shark. I'm sorry. That was really, I should have thought about that. It was inconsiderate of me. (laughs) Yeah, boy. The world will Uh, have uh, its fate decided uh, again. We're nervous. Anyway, happy birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. But also, Ross, sorry, I know you have to get back. Um, Yeah. But while you've been gone, I've been just like sort of catching up on my podcasts and I'm all out. I wondered if you had any recommendations for some good listening. Oh, yeah. You know what? I'm going to twist my ear here and it should play uh, an excellent show for Maximum Fun. Oh, shit. Hey, everybody. This is J. Keith Van Stratton, host of Go Fact Yourself, a live game show here in the Maximum Fun Network. On Go Fact Yourself, we take the smartest people we know and make them look dumb. Paul, by the way, how much do you know about chicken husbandry? You gotta give them that grain. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Gotta give them that grain. And then smart again. What future Hall of Fame pitcher for the Cleveland Indians became the first active player to enlist? Bob Feller. Oh, okay. We've got me, co-host Helen Hong, plus celebrity guests and actual surprise experts. All right, we have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Is it Alan Amy? Helen, who do we have tonight? Alan Havey! Alan Havey! In the coming weeks, you can hear guests like Maria Bamford, Tom Bergeron, Paul F. Tompkins, Janet Varney, and Grant Imahara. Check us out on the first and third Friday of every month here on the Maximum Fun Network. Uh, as I was reading Human Errors, and I really enjoyed reading it. Thank it, you so much. It's, it's such a great thing to hear. It's, well, it's well written, but also there's so many interesting tidbits. And I found the thing that I would do most often as I was reading it would be to stop people and say, oh, hey, did you know that? Look at this. Beforehand, I felt like I knew a lot of great examples about how the octopus has the, the retinal nerves at the back of the eye uh-huh. instead of, you know, puncturing through right. it. like we Or the laryngeal nerve and uh-huh. look at what it does in the giraffe. But you provided so many other great examples. Can you tell the story of the sinus? The sinuses. Well, so this is one of my favorite stories because a lot of the examples in the book have been written about before. So I, I collected things from various sources. But some of the, I, I do tread new ground in, in a couple of places. And I wanted to be even more bold with this section on the sinuses. But I, I waited for the book because I'm now writing an article with some, some surgeons on this. The, the bottom line here is that, first of all, the sinuses have served no function really mm. in the human body. We don't need our nasal sinuses. And if you want to prove this to yourself, try breathing through your mouth. It works. 
it actually works fine. You yeah. see? Did you do was yeah. that okay? I'm I'm doing okay. Yeah. So you don't need to breathe through your nose at all. You breathe through your mouth, uh, and that air is just fine. Your lungs do just fine. So you don't need your nasal passages, your, your nose, your nasal passages at all. Yeah, what do people um, usually say? Like it heats up air? Yeah, if you read medical textbooks, they say, oh, the sinus cavities warm and humidify and purify the air. Hmm. Right. So if you breathe through your mouth, then <laughs> it's dry and unpure and cold. I don't know. I have no trouble breathing out of my mouth. I do it right. all the time. So anyway, so the, my, my issue with the nasal cavities, though, is that they don't drain very well, particularly the largest nasal cavities. I'm pointing to my face. I know this is yeah. a podcast, but uh, the largest nasal cavities are in your cheekbones. They're called the maxillary sinuses. They're just behind your cheekbones, above your jaw. So and, Nathan's pointing to just that big area kind of under the eyes, the north half of the cheeks. Yeah, that's right. Uh, maxillary sinuses. And they're the largest cavities. And they, they do create mucus, and, and that mucus flows, and it flows through the system, collects in your nasopharynx. You're always producing mucus. I mean, people don't always realize this. You don't have to clear your throat every now and then. <clears throat> uh, the reason why is mucus collects in your nasopharynx, which is basically the part of your throat just above your, your mouth, and then drips down your throat and where you swallow it into your stomach where it can neutralize whatever's Completing in it. Completing the great yes. circle of life. <laughs> That's right. Um, so it's it's steady flow of mucus. Well, here's the, here's the problem. The drain pipe for these big nasal passages is at the top of the chamber, not the bottom of the chamber, the top of the chamber. Wait so, a second. I'm a designer. I know about <laughs> gravity. I'm going to put the drainage at the bottom. So imagine if you if you had a shower. I'm, I'm looking at, at a shower right now or a tub, and you put the drain halfway up the wall instead of at the bottom, so it has to fill up before it would drain. That's kind of the design we're talking about. Now, of course, it, we have cilia, which are these microscopic little hairs mm. that push the mucus upwards, but you do have to work against gravity. They have to push this thin, watery mucus up to the top of the chamber so that it can drain through the ostium into the nasopharynx. Well, if it gets thick, if it gets full of dust or particles or bacteria, the drainage slows and eventually stops and you get mucus pooling in the bottom of this chamber, mm. just sort of filling up with, with mucus, festering bacterial infections, viral infections in that space. And that's the common cold uh, or, or a sinus infection. And you said this serious. was all, uh, again, evolution doing its tinkering as it receded our snouts into our faces. That's right. So the nasal sinuses were so important in most mammals because most mammals use their sense of smell. And so what the snout was really for, what the passages, nasal passages are really for is for concentrating all of these olfactory receptors, odor receptors in the long snout of mammals so that they can navigate the world and smell. And dogs have such an intense sense of smell. I mean, it's millions of times more sensitive than what we have, both in what it can discriminate and in just, just how sensitive it is. Mm -hmm. um, we, yeah. we don't navigate the world with our noses very much. Yeah, and you're we, saying that for a dog, really, that's the primary sense. So if yes. your identical twin walks in, they'll know it's not you. Because they will not be fooled at all. That's right. They, they use visual cues, but nowhere near the way that they use their mm. sense of smell. And in fact, a lot of veterinarians uh, tell stories of someone bringing their dog in and they say, you, I think my dog doesn't see very well. And they tell some story where it didn't see the ball or whatever. And the veterinarian takes a look and say, your dog's been blind for years. Wow. And they had no idea until they rearranged the furniture or wow. something like that because they know their way around the house by smell. And they, they can navigate their world by smell. I, I just realized you, you can solve one of our previous investigatory topics. <laughs> uh, do humans have any pheromone sense? Um, yes, I'll, we do have pheromone sense. It's fairly unconscious. Okay. Um, we can't always... Here's the thing. Our sense of smell is our most ancient sense, hmm. right? It's a chemoreceptor hmm. sense. I mean, from 
fish, even before fish, the ability to detect molecules is And it's way. the one that can't be created synthetically as easily. Like, you know, we create televisions and it's easy to vibrate air molecules and create sound. Yeah. It's easy to jostle light and create images, but, you know, smell-o-vision hasn't happened. That's right. It's, it's chemo detection. We're detecting molecules, basically. But the reason I, I say that it's so ancient is that it's also connected with the more ancient areas of our brain, mm-hmm. the hindbrain, the midbrain. So our sense of smell... It's why it's why it brings on vivid memories. It's not mm. as connected to our conscious perception, but um, down to that bottom half of the brain. That's yeah. right. So the more ancient brain, sometimes called the reptile brain, I, I don't really like that word for it, but our, 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 our deeper brain. And so pheromones and other odors can sort of make you feel and act in certain ways that you're not even conscious of. Huh. So it's kind of a little scary, scary in that sense. But anyway, primates, what made us different as mammals going back 100 million years to the origin of primates is we started to use our, our sense of vision, our sense of, of sight, much more than our sense of smell. And what to do that, we brought our eyes forward. So most mammals have their eyes more on the side of their head with a big snout in the middle. Mm-hmm. And they, they have a great field of vision, but they have very poor depth perception because you need two eyes looking at the same field of vision to get that stereoscopic three-dimensional... Yeah. Which is usually described as uh, something predators really need is that mm-hmm. intense ability to scrutinize distance. Mm-hmm. So mammals switched to sight, brought their eyes forward. The problem is if you have this big snout right in the middle, when you brought your eyes forward, it's right in your way. It's right in the middle of your Filling up a bunch of your visual field. Right. So we shrunk the snout at the same time. So the snout shrinks, retracts, and we get this flattening of the face that primates have. Monkeys, but then apes even more so, and humans most of all. We had the flattest face of all primates. So we shoved those nasal passages just up in our head (laughs) instead of out in the snout. And when we did that, some poor crazy design was the result. But the reason we did that is we didn't really need our sense of smell that much. We use it, but we don't use it that much. It's not near as sensitive. We don't have near as many olfactory receptors. And uh, what we have are this crazy redundant set, but it's all just sort of shoved up in our head in weird design. But here's here's the lesson of the book. Yeah. The question people have is, well, if this nasal passage is so poorly designed and we get sick from them all the time, why hasn't evolution fixed that? Ah. Why didn't natural selection solve this problem for us? Right. The answer is that the common cold doesn't kill you. It doesn't stop you from reproducing. Yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't kill you. So it's in natural selection's blind spot. And the lesson here is that evolution, we are not evolved to be healthy or happy or comfortable. Evolution doesn't care about that. doesn't care about our comfort. All it is is we're good enough. To, to survive the reproductive age, then other than that, it, it can't do... As uh, Dawkins would say, it's indifferent. It's not, Evolution it's not against us. It's not for us. It's just, you know... It's indifferent. It's so we have these thing. poor sinus cavities as a result of that, and we get, we get these infections. Now, probably also wasn't as bad in the past as well, because if you get a cold, and then you're immune to that particular that particular virus, if you ever see it again. And when we lived in groups of 100 to 200 people... Mm. A cold could make its way through, and then that was it. Now we live on top of each other, huge population density, so these viruses can circle through the population. By the time it comes back to you, it's mutated. Yeah. Because rhinoviruses in particular, uh, which, which cause the common cold, are made of RNA genomes. Mm. So they mutate much faster. So there's a bazillion strains out there, and you can get three or four colds a year. That's the average. Unless you have children, and it's three or four hundred colds a year is what it feels like. And so, <laughs> they're, But they're all slightly different versions. We can't really become perfectly immune to these colds anymore because it's a different version of the cold. So we don't. We never probably had as many colds as we have now because yeah. of population density. But if you notice, our livestock, they live on top of each other too, and they don't have this problem because they have properly draining Sinuses. They have other problems, yeah. but this particular problem really is poor design of the sinuses. Amazing. 
Okay, I'm, I'm so tempted to ask about so many other things, but I'm going to try to focus on, on extracting one more human error from you. Okay. Uh, childbirth. Oh, that's another great story. And, and many of us know about this in broad strokes. That Well, it's a great story as long as you don't have to go through it. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> Here we are, two men talking about childbirth. <laughs> yes. But, you know, we all know that humans started to develop these big brains. Mm-hmm. And then that made the, the passage getting out into the real world very difficult. Yeah. But, but you had some really cool details on top of that. Right. So we have these big brains, big cranium that gives uh, childbirth a very difficult uh, squeeze. However, the problem starts way before that, way before our brains exploded in size. What happened was the birth canal got a lot skinnier. The reason why is that we brought our legs more forward and in a straight down position from our hips, which narrowed the birth canal. It, It narrowed the pelvis, the center part of the pelvis quite a bit. And the reason why is we have this upright walking. We have this upright striding gait, Mm. as it's called, where our center of gravity doesn't bounce around very much. It's right over the top and our legs move forward and backward, not flayed out to the side. Mm -hmm. So to really walk well upright, you got to have a nice narrow hips, narrow pelvis. That happened first. So we walked upright and we still had tiny little ape brains. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did that for a couple million years before the the real action began. Um, But it's too late at that point. So then the the brain started growing bigger and and cranial capacity got bigger and bigger and bigger with this narrow little pelvis. And that's a perfect example of evolution pulling on both ends of the rope. Because it's great to have a narrow pelvis for walking, but it's great to have a big brain for everything (laughs) else. And women in childbirth essentially got stuck in the middle. These are those trade-offs that you were talking about. Exactly. It's a trade-off. It's a compromise. And the compromise was pretty bloody in a sense of a probably infant slash maternal mortality was probably around 10% for a lot of our history. It's, It's hard to put numbers on this, but if you look at populations that have no access to medical care, that's about what it is. About 10% of births, you lose one wow. party or both. And we, we've ironed out a lot of the kinks, but childbirth is still very difficult. Yeah, Conceiving it is. is difficult. That's another story you tell. <laughs> that's another one. We'll talk about that yeah, uh, some another other time. time. But yeah, but the, the, the childbirth itself is, is very, very dramatic and traumatic for humans. And it's mm-hmm. just not that way in other species. Other apes um, have no trouble, little, very little trouble with childbirth. And it's, it's really a uniquely human problem. And it leads to other problems too, because to, to prevent the problem from being any worse, we're actually born very early. Right. Humans are born, I would say, two months before they're really ready. Huh. Um, and the brain continues to grow after birth. But but it's kind of the last, this is your last stop. Either get out or you're stuck. Or, or both parties will die. Yeah. yeah so we, we are born as late as we can be, but probably at t- about two months undercooked. You see all these other animals that drop out of the womb and they start walking around. Yeah, they go, shake what? themselves off and they're off and, and running the first day. Humans are incredibly incapable for years on end, requiring an enormous amount of parental care and investment. And, and to be honest, that's another part of the happy story because this along with concealed ovulation, menopause, a few other things, I think is involved in the evolution of the human family. Mm -hmm. Because when parental care is so important, then men have to stick around, first of all. But you you also have other family members helping. Really, we, we really became groups and families around how incapable the infants are. Yeah, we've got to join. For, it takes a village. We've it got takes to a village, right, because together someone's sure got to watch the kid, and you can't be, you can't take the kid anywhere where the crying would subject you to risk, right? right? When you're a so, turtle, you can lay 200 eggs and hope most of them away. get to the to the beach. Some won't. But yeah, yeah with the humans, we're we're betting on uh, fewer organisms. So. Fewer and, 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 and investing in them at great cost. Yeah. Uh, and protecting them. And protecting yourself and hopefully the baby doesn't cry, uh, hmm. cry too loud so the lions know where we are and, and eat us. And what a trade-off just yeah. to get this big brain. But yet 
this big brain allowed us to invent podcasting and, yeah, and everything else. Pretty cool things, <laughs> uh, including excellent books like Human Errors. Well, <laughs> uh, thank you, Nathan. I could, I would love to pick your brain all Let's day. do a part two. Yeah, oh, yeah. gladly, <laughs> anytime. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about like tetrachromats and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, um, I, that comes up in the book, actually. Oh, yeah, oh, that's right. So uh, anyways, I, I can't highly recommend uh, Human Errors enough for everybody, and I'm looking forward to Not So Different. Uh, but you have a podcast of your own. I do, yeah. It's called This World of Humans. Uh, I don't have that many episodes yet. I'm still looking for long-term funding. Uh, but I, we're talking about new research in biology and social science. Okay. Well, we're all going to listen to those and then mm-hmm. eagerly tap our feet waiting for you to, to <laughs> produce more. If anybody wants to fund the podcast, it's very cheap. I just need some money. Excellent. Uh, any, any other way that people can follow you online and your work? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I was on Tumblr, but Tumblr's not much of a thing anymore. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, both Nathan Lentz. You can find me there. And I have the Human Evolution blog. I only do maybe an article a month, but I, I, I write about things I'm thinking about and things I'm working on. I'm, I'm working on a book right now on human sexuality. Uh, I'm really excited about that project. It's basically the evolution of human sexuality oh, can't and wait. human sexual relationships. Yeah. Um, because you know what's inspired me to write this book is the no labels movement. So young people now are just sort of throwing off all the shackles of social constructions around their sexual relationships. Hmm. So they're, I'm not straight, I'm not bi, I'm, I'm demisexual or whatever. You know, there yeah, are all yeah. these interesting new terms and labels and, and then just learn. no labels altogether. And then also their relationships, you know, like they're poly and they're open relations, all this. Mm-hmm. And what I've found interesting about it is what, what they're really doing is returning to a more natural relationship with sex in the sense that it didn't have all these crazy boundaries and labels uh, in our past. Right. And now we have this control over it with mm-hmm. uh, contraception. That's right. That's right. So I find it I find it empowering and inspiring. So I've, I'm writing a book about the evolution of human sexuality and how we're sort of reclaiming a more glorious past. So that's my next book. Oh, I can't um, wait. Yeah, uh, me too. It's, uh, it's slow going though. I do have a day job. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All the more impressive. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nathan. I appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. Ross. Oh, hi, Carrie. Hey, hey. I've returned. Boy, you could sound happier. You know, about you know what? It. Actually, no, I'm very happy to have you here. In fact, I just finished the interview with Nathan Lentz. Oh, how did it go? Uh, very well. You know, nice. if you'd stuck around, you could have heard it. But uh, yeah, I've been working on this whole telepathy thing it takes a lot of energy to get oh, here I, to las vegas i bet yeah oh yeah well well done anyways yeah i'll play it for you later so uh, any any final words uh, before we leave well i just wanted to remind you ross that our administrative manager is ian kramer oh well i would add to that that our theme music is by brian keith dalton oh interesting well did you know that we have social media accounts you can find us on facebook.com forward slash on or twitter at ono podcast If you haven't rage quit either of those, you can find us there. (laughs) Also, you can support us by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. That is the best place to help contribute to what we do, uh, to sending planes into the air with mm-hmm. banners. That's just one example, J- just, randomly chosen. Or or for us to join conferences, all these other fun things we do, products that we buy, services that we sign up for. Uh, it's all made possible because of you and our sponsors, but mostly you. That's right. Uh, another great way you can support us is to support our advertisers, use our promo codes, or write a review. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hug somebody in your life. Consensually, though. Make sure that they want to hug first. Check in. See that they want to hug. Then hug them. Then say thank you for the hug. And then say, Ross and Carrie, say hi. See how this all tied in? I'm sure that won't be creepy. (laughs) And And remember, remember, you are the product of four billion years of evolutionary success. Act like it.
are so thrilled at your interest in attending Hieronymus Wiggenstaff's School for Heroism and Villainy. Wiggenstaff's beautiful campus boasts state-of-the-art facilities and instructors with real-world experience. We are also proud to say that our alumni have gone on to be professional heroes and villains in the most renowned kingdoms in the world. But of course, you are not applying to the main school, are you? You're applying for our sidekick and henchperson annex. You will still benefit from the school's amazing campus and you'll have a lifetime of steady employment. Of course, there's no guarantee how long that lifetime will be. Join the McElroys as they return to Dungeons & Dragons with The Adventure Zone Graduation every other Thursday on Maximum Fun or wherever podcasts are found. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.